Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. So, that music can only mean two things. Either we're about to show a montage of people shopping on a really busy day in the city, or it's election time. Uh, and since, obviously, this is a podcast and not a visual thing, um, it can really only mean one thing. Right? Election season's upon us. So, when we first had the idea to do an episode on elections, um, you know, the, the thought was, there have been lots of um, interesting treatments of elections in pop culture, books and film and television and so forth. And so we thought it'd be fun to, to bring out some of that. But then the more we, we thought about it and talked about it, it became um, clear that, you know, elections, at least here in the United States, have actually become pop culture, right? This, our, especially, you know, we're having a presidential election right now. It's a real spectacle, um, you know, and it's you know, rhetoric all over the place. And, um, you know, it's a philosopher's dream. If you're teaching a critical thinking class during election time, you know, you, you don't have to use your usual assortment of fallacies and instances of irrational techniques of persuasion, right? You just pop up, um, you know, YouTube videos of stump speeches and, you know, it's, it, it's everywhere. I used to, in 2016, I was teaching a critical thinking course during the election season and... Uh, you know, I just played the presidential debates when we were talking about rhetorical devices and fallacies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there just, are plenty. I mean, just a depressing number of examples. And let the students go nuts. Yeah, and it's and it's an interesting bit of pop culture in that you know um, we all participate in it, right? Not every single person votes, but lots of people do in presidential elections. But everybody's talking and arguing, and whether you're voting or not, I mean, it's it's, it's hard to to avoid. So um, we thought it would be a good idea to bring in um, an expert, someone that's sort of on both sides of the fence, um, not necessarily politically, but rather, you know, um, a philosopher who's also a politician. So today we're talking to um, Randy Oxer, who is a professor of philosophy and communication studies at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Um, And so... um, I've known Randy for many years because he um, publishes with the same publisher we publish with, um, frequently Open Court. He's written, you know, 20 academic books and a number of other books for commercial markets. Um, he edits, um, he's the deputy chief editor of the journal Eidos, um, a scholarly book series from SUNY Press in New York and so forth. Um, but he's also a, a Green Party candidate who's run for Congress and state office in Illinois. Um, and he's currently running for Illinois State House representative in the 115th district. Um, and actually, um, I think, has a, a real shot at winning. Um, so, you know, he, he's seen this as a philosopher, as a, as a you know, member of society. Um, but he's also seen it as politicians. Um, as a politician, and he just has a number of um, of insights. So, um, without further ado, let's talk to Randy Oxer. Hi, Randy. Thanks for joining us. Sure, good to be here. Yeah, nice to have you. All right, so let's um, let's dive right in. So, you're in a unique position to talk about elections because you're running for office. Um, can you tell us a little about your campaign? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm a member of the Green Party. Uh, have been for a long time. Uh, I joined in 2000, back during Nader era, um, and essentially I was just a supporter of the Green Party. But it's hard to find candidates, good candidates anyway, who are willing to sort of put themselves out there. It's a very, uh, it's a scary time, and it's a scary thing to sort of expose yourself and your family to all that goes with running for public office. 
but as a matter of fact, I'm just so squeaky clean and so thick skinned that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that I'm not afraid of this. So uh, I warmed up by running for county board uh, here in town and uh, got enough votes to establish uh, the party um, uh, in that oh, category. And then I took the dive in 2018 and ran for U.S. Congress. Um, and that was a real experience. Uh, I got 8,000 votes. I only needed about 200,000 to win. And so uh, you can see how that went. But uh, <laughs> but uh, I met lots of people. And uh, But this time, I'm running for the State House of Representatives in Illinois, 115th District, and there's no Democrat in the race. And the Republican incumbent has moved on to run for State Senate, so it's a vacant seat. Oh, wow. And the person who won the Republican primary is not that well-known or that popular, and the Libertarian joined the race. <laughs> who's going to cut in. Both, yeah. Not from me, but from my... So I might win this time. So you're um, you're uh, in a fight. That's great. I'm, I'm yeah. excited about that prospect. I'm excited about winning the election. Uh, serving is another, uh, is another matter, because that would be an entirely different kind of adventure. Uh, but rather, what I have been doing in the past is running in order to sort of make my contribution to the building of the, of the Green Party. Right. So we, we filed this under be careful what you wish for sort of thing. You you, oh, you, you just yeah. might end up there serving. and um... That would that could it really could happen this time. I'm getting a lot of like, I'm getting a lot of help from the Democrats. Oh, wonderful. Um, yeah. which, which is a real change from what it was before. Right, right. Because <laughs> you were siphoning from them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, the Republicans ignored me. The Democrats were very mean to me, <laughs> but, but not, but not this time. So at least I, I got a chance to learn that it wasn't personal. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Could, couldn't have been. You're, you're a charming guy. So uh, it must be interesting running during the pandemic. Uh, how, how is campaigning different during the pandemic? Uh, this is very much. This is very much to my liking because there are the, one of the things you learn about uh, yourself is, is what parts of this you're good at. Uh, running for office. Of course, I've not served. So uh, that would be, like I say, I'll learn a lot about myself there, too. Spot on my glasses. Hold on. Sorry, guys. <sighs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, the, um, the parts that I'm best at uh, are anything involved in this entire process, which is very complicated, which does not involve shaking hands and kissing babies. Uh, this <laughs> I had to learn how to make a political stump speech. You guys can understand because I'm an academic just mm -hmm. like you. And, uh, and, and a political speech is not like a classroom, classroom lecture. You can't do that. Uh, I'm so used to, you know, trying to give all sides of the story and <laughs> all the, yeah. you know, the yeah. sorts of things that academics do. And when you're, you, it's, it's a move over into uh, a rhetorical domain that's not even comfortable for a rhetoric professor like me. Uh, <laughs> and, so, uh, and so anyway, you know, and, uh, 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 it's one thing to teach rhetoric and it's quite, it's quite another thing to go out there and perform it. And so, so but, it, but I, did, I did learn how to do that. Um, and it was good for me <laughs> to, to learn how to do that and to say what I actually think and to privilege it above what mm -hmm. other people yeah. think. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so, uh, so anyway, but that took. But I did get good at it. It took some practice. I wasn't good at it right away, uh, but 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 that part I like. Um, the I'm really really comfortable with the media because I've been on the radio for 20 years, mm -hmm. and uh, and you just get used to this sort of mode of speaking and interacting. Um, and of course, as uh, as a philosophy professor and a rhetoric professor. Uh, one of the things I've really paid close attention to is the structure of questions. Mm -hmm. And so the press asks me questions, and I answer the question they ask. Them. So, <laughs> Imagine so, that. that, that I, and so they love me. They love me. It's like, wow, you answered the question I asked instead of the one you wanted to answer. Um, and so that's a, I think it's a breath of fresh air, and uh, the press has been really good to me. I mean, uh, both the right and the left. Uh, down here have been have been really cordial, and I get lots of lots of exposure, and so I'm really good at that part of the uh, uh, of the process. And so since I'm not having to go out and uh, shake hands and kiss babies, I'm very bad at walking into a room and saying, "Hi, I'm Randy Osher. I'd like to have your vote, please." You know, I just, 
I would rather just go sort of sink into the corner. I'm not really an introvert, but sink into the corner and wait for someone to come and talk to me. Uh, that's just sort of how I am at a party or how I am at, you know, <laughs> at any kind of event like that. And you just can't be that way. Fortunately, I have had a campaign manager. She would just push me. Like, uh, and when she realized that wasn't going to work, she'd go and talk to groups of people and say, they want to talk to you over there. Mm-hmm. And then she'd bring me over there. <laughs> <laughs> and she's probably telling them, Randy wants to talk to you, and they're saying, bring him over. I don't, and... she, I don't know how she does it, but, uh, but she's comfortable with that sort of thing. And so, uh, uh, and so you know, I kind of need, I kind of need. But fortunately, this time I don't have to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because there aren't any events. And so to get finally to what Rachel was asking about, it, <laughs> this is totally different. This is being this is a campaign that is being run largely in the media, including social media. And I'm reasonably good at the social media thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we'll have to see. I mean, I've put out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of signs. That part of it is <laughs> you know, is that part of it is, you know, I get an opportunity to have a reunion with my 1500 Facebook friends who live locally here and, 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 you know, ask them one by one, can I put a sign in your yard? Can I put a sign in your yard? Uh, and then, um, uh, and, and, and then go out and do that. And so that part of it is actually kind of fun because you get a crew and a minivan with a bunch of signs and we've had beautiful weather here. I don't know about Utah, but I'll tell you, Southern Illinois has had one of the prettiest falls you could, you could ever want. Yeah, it's been and nice so far be out there and, you know, putting the, the ground's kind of hard because it hasn't rained much. But, uh, but I mean, you know, it's like that's what I spend my Saturdays and Sundays doing. I drive all over this district, which is a very gerrymandered district. And so mm-hmm. it's really long and really narrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. so I, I think it's, I think it's a hundred miles from the southern tip to the, to the northern. Oh, wow. wow. For oh, a state, goodness. state district, that's, that's huge or long. Skinny. Yeah, it's yeah. long. It's, it's a ridiculous district. I hope that they do away with it when they redistrict and, you know, after the census, because this is, it's crazy. Maybe you'll be the deciding vote um, <laughs> on, on that. Well, Illinois is going to a nonpartisan redistricting commission. Oh, wonderful. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. And, and as a matter of fact, I would be in a good position to serve on such a commission. And so, uh, uh, yeah. because, because I'm not a Democrat and I haven't been for a long time. I was a Republican when I was growing up, but my first presidential election, which was 1980, Ronald Reagan was running, and I couldn't vote for him. He's <laughs> <laughs> being a Republican. I voted for John Anderson. Do you even remember who that guy was? He was I, a senator from Illinois who ran as an independent. I, I do. Um, almost all my friends supported Anderson in that one, right? It was just a, <laughs> well, a whole a great guy. Yeah, a whole big I group. I, I've lived here for a long time. I grew up in Tennessee. Uh, but but I just couldn't. Carter, wonderful man, had been an ineffective president, um, uh, and uh, and Reagan was scary. <laughs> so so I voted for John Anderson rather happily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, that was my my first election as well, our first presidential. So we're we must be about the same age. But um, I I started my tradition of voting for losing candidates in that one. Um, <laughs> With Carter, <laughs> so it's it's oh, it's been mostly a rough ride for me in um, presidential politics, but uh, but yeah, I, I voted for Carter, um, and I a lot of people I might have voted for Anderson had he, um, you know, I guess he was initially running as a Republican if I remember, he and was. then yeah, so had he got the party nod, I I might have gone in that direction, although I wasn't a Republican, but we all just loved him. I mean, he was yeah, yeah, he was a great guy. And uh, you could tell he was honest. And he's an old-fashioned kind of Republican uh, that, that just doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> um, uh, you know, somebody somebody who's moderate on social policy, moderate on economic policy. He's a Republican because he was from Illinois. Lincoln's very, you know. Yeah, very, yeah. So, yeah, but that things have changed since 1980. Yeah. So have, have you um, grappled with ethical issues in constructing your campaign since we're talking about things like gerrymandering and being honest with the um, press or is it? Well, I'm not struggling personally um, uh, with it because I know what I think. And, and since, I mean, I agree with the Green Party's 10 key values uh, and there's very little in their platform that I disagree with. I regard myself as a progressive conservative, but the word conservative means for me sort of what it means for David Hume, 
mm-hmm. or uh, I mean, it, it means meaningful change is slow. And what happens to the least of us happens to all of us. And uh, and conservation is uh, the, taking the least action necessary to meet the challenge is always the best solution to the problem. And so uh, uh, and so if that makes me a conservative in the classical sense, that's what I am. But I'm also somebody who cares deeply about the environment and about economic justice and these kinds of things. And I don't see any reason uh, to, to, to to sort of mince words with the press or anybody else about that. I mean, anybody who wants to know what I think can very easily find out. I think I've published something like a million words. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, seemingly. There's no place for me to hide. Everybody, anybody who wants to find out what I think on any topic whatsoever, it's out there. Uh, I'm not sure they want to read it. (laughs) I've I've thought about running for office, and then I thought about all the stuff in my publications that would bury me. And then I thought, no one's going to ever look at those, right? (laughs) You couldn't pay an intern, you know, to pour through those things. Um, no, I mean, especially not the technical stuff. I mean, uh, uh, we all here uh, <coughs> write popular stuff as well. But I'm not the least bit worried about anything I've ever said in print. I never said anything that I would have to take back. Or, I mean, you know, once in a while in the popular stuff, I might use language that's kind of rough. That doesn't tend to show up in the books, the technical books and articles. Um, uh, but, but I mean, come on. I mean, I'm a human being. I, I talk like a human being, and so I'm, I don't see any reason to sh- to shrink away from anything I ever said in print. And but you're right. I can. By the way, you're probably good to run for office, Richard, <laughs> because nobody has read anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that I have had some people read my popular blog, and and a number of people read the political blog that's mm-hmm. associated with my campaign website. Uh-huh. Um, but even though, even, even that tends toward the academic for them. I mean, to mm-hmm. me, it, it doesn't look academic at all. Yeah. <laughs> right, even the pop stuff. Um, I've, I've had that experience too. You give it to students and they say, wow, this is dense philosophy. And it's like, no, it was written for you <laughs> as somebody who goes to the movies, right? Uh, yeah, so. no, it's, uh, uh, I've got to say that's... Uh, uh, that is the response I got too. I mean, once in a while, I teach this stuff out of popular culture books, including some of my own stuff, and the students will say it's difficult. Mm-hmm. Huh? And, and I'm going, oh no, no, uh, <laughs> I put my point, that's difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, what do you think? You haven't encountered any ethical issues in your own campaign. What do you think about the ethics of campaigning more broadly? How it occurs now? Actually, now that you bring that up, I did hit an ethical issue in this campaign, and it bears on the, the, the other question about how I see it more broadly. So without, without going into any detail whatsoever, I did some opposition research, and I came up with some dirt. Mm-hmm. Um, I did it myself. Nobody else did it. And then I had to decide what to do uh-huh. with the dirt I found. Um, uh, and. I, in the end, have been unwilling to do anything with it. Um, right, I, good I, I talked. I talked to the campaign committee, my Democrat advisors. I've got a whole, <laughs> I've got a whole <coughs> council of Democrats advising me. They wanted me to use. It. They said, in fact, probably the most experienced of those Democrats, and he's, he's like one of the most important Democrat leaders in this county, in Jackson County, Illinois. He said, if you don't use this, you don't want to win. <sighs> oh, wow. I like this guy, but and and but all the Democrats wanted me to do it, and the Greens were like, well, "I don't know." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and so, uh, what decided it? I was on the fence about what to do. I was even about to make a commercial. Had we had a script, I had lined up the location, and I was about to make an attack ad. Oh. And then the presidential debate occurred hmm. between Trump and Biden. And I thought, no, I just can't do it. I mean, that, that was, I, and, and I have to admit, I had been on the fence for like over two weeks, maybe, you know, in possession of this information, uh, damaging information for over two weeks. And I just didn't know. I just didn't know. And I do want to win. Um, uh, and so, uh, and so anyway, then I watched that debate. And I'm like, man, I just can't have anything to do with this. Uh, this is where this leads. Yeah. No, just not going to do it. 
Uh, and so what I decided to do instead, which is what I have done in previous races, is become the nicest person, most civil person in any race, agreeing with my opponent anytime I possibly can and doing so explicitly. And that's really more my personality anyway. I'm not a contrarian. And so uh, 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 I, 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 I'm a little bit sassy, but, but not at all contrarian. Uh, if somebody says something true, it's true. It doesn't matter that yeah. they said it. Maybe they score points, but maybe I score points by recognizing that it's true. And when somebody says something I disagree with, I disagree respectfully. And so one of the things that I'd like to see is civility return to the campaigning process. It just doesn't have to be like this. Uh, but I, those, as I, I mean, I teach political communication and, and rhetoric, and, and I say to the students, um, the reason they run these attack ads is because they work. Hmm. I, I wonder if the other approach wouldn't work better than people think. So what I have in mind is there's a, a couple of very famous instances of people being, you know, magnanimous or just honest. You know, the, the most famous one recently is maybe McCain telling the woman at the town hall that, no, Obama's not a Muslim. He's not a bad guy. We just disagree. He's gotten so much praise for that subsequently that, you know, you wonder if it wouldn't be a, an effective strategy to, to be the politician that is modeling good behavior and promoting rational civil discourse. So, uh, you know, at least until it wasn't novel anymore. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so, uh, uh, I mean, it used to be when, when I was growing up, and you too, Richard, it used to be that the that 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 you you made your point firmly. I mean, you know, watch Barry Goldwater's speeches or something. Uh, you made your point firmly. You made your disagreements clear, but you didn't attack yeah. your opponent. Uh, maybe you attacked your opponent's views. Um, and I remember when it changes, and I teach this in uh, uh, in, in my courses. Um, the moment it changed was when. Lyndon Johnson ran that Daisy ad against, yeah, yeah. against Barry Goldwater. And, and Could you say what that is? I don't know what it is, and I don't know if all of our listeners will. <laughs> well, go to YouTube and type in Johnson Daisy ad. Okay. Uh, and you'll see, basically, it's a little girl picking petals off of a flower. Uh, if she's counting them as, as, she's, as she's pulling the petals off of a flower... And in the background, somebody is counting down uh, the, uh, uh, the the launch of a missile. Okay. And then, bam. Then what happens is you see uh, they zoom in on her eye, and you see reflected in her uh, iris, not iris, but her pupil. You see a mushroom glow. Oh wow. Yeah, so classic fear mongering, right? Um, yeah, it it was it was over the top, and then afterwards, uh, the voice of Lyndon Johnson comes on, uh, quoting a poem from W. H. Auden about how we have to either all get along or die, something like that. But uh, but anyway, it's like whoa, nothing like that had ever been done in American politics, uh, and so. It was a use of the television medium that, well, it changed the game from there forward, scaring, scaring us about the other guy, whoever it may be, uh, became pretty much the standard practice. And it worked and, and it still works. I, I agree with you, Richard, that in particular right now, when people are so weary of that, uh, just being. I mean, if John McCain had just been John McCain instead of doing what they told him to do, he would have been elected. But instead, he too he he did too much of what the the Lee Atwater <laughs> view of, uh, of of essentially not even telling quite the truth. And you could tell it just wasn't him. Yeah, yeah. No, and and he reverted back right after it was all over. He became that yeah. dignified yeah. statesman again. And yeah, yeah. I'm, what, I'm, what did he why didn't you run as the real John McCain? You would have won. I might have even voted for him. I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, but, man, I, I would have been tempted to vote for him. Um, but I, and I did trust him until he chose Sarah Palin. Yeah, that that, and then the economy collapsing were just sealing the deal. It seems 
like there was at least some like um, in the that Daisy ad that you described. It seems like it was at least somewhat artistic or something. Now I'm. It's surprising to me that attack ads work in their current form, where it's like some really ominous voice yeah. and then this weird music playing in the background. It's and I'm always just like, music. oh, brother, right? Like, I can't believe that works on anyone. The soundtrack from Excalibur always plays. Exactly right, Rachel. It really is. It, it is a very artistically done ad. Um, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's like they got Don Draper and the Mad Men yeah. to do this. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> so, I mean, Wow. Um, uh, and of course, it's, I guess you could really honestly say that it's all been downhill since then. Um, uh, because I don't know who came up with the idea of that. I do know Bill Moyers was involved in it. Um, you know, he was Johnson's press secretary. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so uh, he was involved in the creation of that commercial. And so the nice old man, you know, as Bill Moyers, mm-hmm. he, he was one of the ones who did that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he's had a, a rough time of it of late too, with you know he the Me Too canceling and all that. So he's he's not the guy, or seemingly possibly not the guy it seemed. All right, well this this leads us to something we were wondering about, right? Um, how should we change campaigns, right? If you were in charge of campaign rules, um, what would they be? You know, would you? Well, they'd be publicly funded. I would do it exactly the way Great Britain does it: uh, publicly funded campaigns, um, uh, uh, six week period. Uh, to, to limit it, uh, uh, and the spending limit is the same for everyone who qualifies, and the qualification process isn't this. I mean, Illinois has the strictest ballot access laws for third parties of any state in the union. It is almost impossible to get on the ballot in Illinois. Um, uh, and the only reason that we're running a lot of green candidates this time but we sought um, uh, relief from the ballot access laws through a lawsuit uh, with the libertarians. We joined with the libertarians. We, we joined with them a lot when it comes to ballot access uh, in this state. And we managed to get a judgment uh, from a judge that essentially said we only had to do 10% of what we would normally have to do to get on the ballot because we can't go out and collect signatures uh, and all of that. And the process is just punitive. Um, yeah. uh, it's so difficult uh, to get on the ballot. But anyway, so uh, I would have ranked choice voting. I would have publicly funded elections. Uh, and if, if we had those two things, uh, you would see a much greater spread of viewpoints. Uh, and you wouldn't, you, you would very quickly, with ranked choice voting alone, you would very quickly see uh, that uh, people prefer to have more than two choices uh, when it comes to uh, uh, when it comes to choosing their candidates. They don't want to shoehorn their views into just. I mean, I've never been able to do it. I've never been able to feel good about voting for one of the major parties. I do it uh, because there aren't third-party choices, and even sometimes when there are, I wouldn't want those third-party choices. Um, uh, and so, so I study uh, in order to try to find out which Republican or which Democrat is honest. Uh, and that's what I'm almost, I, I don't worry as much about agreement and disagreement as I worry about honesty and dishonesty. Mm-hmm. And so I'd like to, I mean, right at the moment, I have signs for Democrats and Republicans as well as Greens in my yard. Uh, and so, so, I mean, I'm going to vote for some of, some of each. And the reason I have those Republicans, there are two Republicans in the yard right now, is because I know them, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. And I know the Democrats, they're running against to be dishonest. Mm-hmm. So, 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 I mean, you know, what the party doesn't make that much difference to me, but I do think that, that we have created a system, Rachel, that makes it virtually impossible unless you become a true student of your local politics and of national politics to even know what the lesser of two evils is. Um, yeah. uh, uh, and so that's just, it's an unacceptable system. And campaigning would choose, would change totally if we had ranked choice voting and publicly funded elections. Do you think that would have an effect on some of the negative campaigning, right? If you, if you had limited funds, would you be concerned with getting your message out? Or would some be entirely concerned with smearing the other candidate? I mean, I'm kind of thinking, I guess I'm optimistic, but the combination of rank choicing and limited money might make it imperative that somebody say, 
here's what I stand for. Here's why you might want to vote for me above all else. That generally is what happens in Great Britain. But of course, they've got a parliamentary system so that uh, if your party gets, you know, X percentage of the vote, total vote, you get X percentage of seats. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and we'll never have that in this country. And I'm not sure. I mean, it works. There's no denying it. Uh, but I'm not sure that it's better than what we have. Um, it, it's kind of hard to say. Uh, having, having a strong executive, uh, or as Hamilton rightly put, the energy in the executive, I love the way he described it, uh, from, which comes from having a president who's, who's head of state as opposed to a prime minister uh, who is, you know, caught between in the coalition of, you know, yeah. three or four parties in order to form a government. Having a stronger executive, I think, has served us well as a general rule. Uh, but of course, as, as you well know, and Joseph J. Ellis, who writes all these wonderful books about the founding of the, uh, of the country, one of the things he points out is they knew, the framers knew they could not resolve their differences, so they wrote their differences into the Constitution, so that we would have to keep having the same argument over, and that's what we do. Yeah. How far does executive power reach? Um, sometimes too far. But as a general rule, and over over the past 237 years, or um, 39 years now since the 1991 when it was ratified, um, uh, it, during that time, uh, when executive power overreached, it has tended to be uh, beaten back. Um, and I mean, you know, so for example, when Andrew Jackson said of uh, Chief Justice Marshall, when when he declared unconstitutional removal act, the Indian Removal Act, Andrew Jackson said, well, it's his judgment, let him enforce it. <laughs> right? <laughs> and in other words, Jackson completely ignored the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh um, uh, and he got away with it. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, by the way, uh, in terms of executive overreach, I am not sure that Donald Trump is, <laughs> is the worst we've ever had. In fact, I'm sure he's not the worst we've ever had. Thomas Jefferson, as much as you wouldn't think, did all kinds of things that were executive overreach. And you would think he would be the last person to do that, mm -hmm. given, given his philosophical views. And yet he did it over and over and over. He did things he just didn't have the authority to do, like buy Louisiana. Yeah. <laughs> Power corrupts, right? <laughs> it, well, it does. Well, here's the thing. I, Thomas Jefferson is not someone I admire as a human being. Uh, but I... I do think that he was sitting there asking himself, sort of like, here I have been talking about executive overreach for my entire life, and now I'm the president, and this is what will this is what will serve the country, yeah. <laughs> in my <laughs> honest opinion. And so I'm just going to do it. <laughs> and so, wow! And that's what he did, and so he, he becomes a total hypocrite. But then again, it takes Nixon to go to China, right? Yeah. You, you, you fight communism your whole life, and then you make a deal with Mao. Are you mm -hmm. kidding me? <laughs> That's right. But, but so, you know, sometimes, sometimes you find yourself in that executive position and you begin to realize that your philosophical um, convictions can be overridden by practical considerations. Um, and, and, you know, so you just kind of have to take the hit and realize if you're Thomas Jefferson, that history is going to look at you and say, what a hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> nice job, by the way, getting the um, ancient Klingon proverb um, in there. What's that? Oh, it, was, it was in Star Trek VI, the Klingons claim to have come up with only Nixon could have gone to China, right? In the, <laughs> oh, I in the movie. I remember that. I'm, I'm a Trekkie, but I didn't remember that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ancient Klingon proverb, only Nixon could have gone to China. It, it, well, it fell flat. <laughs> it, and it was absolutely the right thing to do. Uh, and, so, and so I'm sitting here thinking, this anti-communist, have you ever watched Nixon's old speeches? And yeah, yeah. What a I mean, this guy was practically Joseph McCarthy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and just lashing out, too. You know, he, he wasn't measured or controlled when he started talking. It's just, uh, he was deeply ideological and, uh, and, and reactionary, and there he is making a deal with Mal. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's just, the truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah, indeed. So we talked about some changes that you would make to... Uh, campaign rules and so on. What about debates? So you, we mentioned how ugly this most recent debate was, but. 
so so here's the thing. Debate is something that I, I actually know a good bit about as a result of sort of what I do for a living. Um, uh, and one of the things that you learn very quickly is that no matter how you formalize a debate, there are always weaknesses uh, in, in the structure. So that, for example, uh, the Lincoln-Douglas style debate that's competitive or the kinds of uh, uh, the, the typical uh, uh, debates that are uh, sanctioned by the debate associations used to be the National Forensics League. Now they've got a new name. I've forgotten what what, what their what their name is. Um, what happens is is that whatever ends up getting judged uh, um, uh, higher, that becomes a fetish on the part of the debaters. <laughs> and so uh, and so when you formalize debate, um, the question that you have to consider is what is it. Uh, what's the purpose? If the purpose is to prevail, then is it to prevail at any cost? So how much of a competition is it, or how much is it a teaching instance, or how much uh, is it a uh, uh, is it an, uh, an informational um, uh, moment? And my preference for this kind of thing, uh, I just had a debate with, with my current opponent, and they only allowed us a minute and a half for our answers to each question, and they alternated who got the question first so that we really sort of did have an opportunity to respond to what the other person say, but there was no rebuttal opportunity, and you hmm. can't say much in a minute and a half. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it, it, it's really heavy pressure uh, to be in a situation like that. Had they even given us two minutes uh, with a 30-second rebuttal opportunity, then I would I would think that we get a deeper understanding of the relationship between the candidates and where they really differ and where they where they really do overlap uh, and so is there an ideal debate format you need a strong moderator you need strong questions in the case of the debate i just described uh it was league of women voters and they allowed their members to submit the question well some areas got completely neglected because nobody happened to submit a question some really important stuff didn't get talked about at all uh, because nobody submitted a question, and so obviously there's a flaw in that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the 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 point is, is debates can be valuable. Um, I do think that it depends on the goodwill uh, of all concerned in order to make a debate valuable, and that if your idea is is just to score points with the voters uh, uh, by you know, by belittling or, uh, or or sidestepping or all the things that we see in these national debates. I mean, I don't think Kamala Harris answered a single question she was asked. Uh, she answered the questions she wanted, not the questions she got. Um, and did she do a good job? Well, heck, yeah, she's impressive. Um, but it's impossible for somebody like me to watch that and say, not only is this all scripted, um, in, in, in advance, but it almost just doesn't make any difference what question the moderator asks, mm -hmm. because, because both, both candidates in that case, they, they did a good job of being civil to one another, um, and I thought that that debate went pretty well as these things go, and it is funny, if you look back historically, uh, the vice presidential debates tend to be closer to real debate <laughs> than <laughs> Than the presidential debate, but the, the more time has gone on, the more these things are scripted and the less the moderator can actually make any difference. I actually thought that what happened last night with the town halls was uh, was interesting. Uh, split town halls so that, you know, you can watch one, you're going to have to watch the other one later, but that Trump's town hall was really, it was, it was valuable because the moderator wouldn't back down. Yeah, that's been the headline all day, right? Yeah. That she wouldn't she wouldn't let him off the hook she made him answer the questions that he evaded in the debate mm -hmm. uh and so and and i guess he knew that was going to happen um uh but he you know except for one or two uh things that he just you know he wouldn't denounce QAnon. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but but i mean you know he he pretty much ended up having to do what the moderator at uh uh what's his name mark what's his name from fox news wanted him to do at the debate he pretty much ended up having to do that last night so maybe the town hall is a better uh 
uh, and certainly some of the greatest moments in presidential politics have occurred at town halls, like uh, in that moment when uh, when a woman asked George Bush Sr., uh, George H.W. Bush, what effect the recession had had on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, as I say, Richard remembers this, like he didn't understand the question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He gave us sort of a general policy answer. And she said, no, I'm talking about you personally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, well, I still have my job. <laughs> Millions. I saw, I saw a cartoon in the Washington Post after the election. And George H.W. Bush was sitting on a park. It's just a cartoon sitting on a park bench with a bum. And he looks over at the bum and he says, I think I can answer that woman's question now. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, there, there have been some great moments in the debate. I remember, um, you know, Admiral Stockdale standing on the stage and, and not. Well, it was it was viewed as a disaster, but it made everybody kind of love him because he didn't prepare speeches to launch into. Can you, can you say what you mean? What are you talking about? Yeah. So when when was this? Um, it would have been ninety two. Ninety two. Was running and Admiral Richard Stockdale was his running mate, and this was the vice presidential debate. And Richard Stockdale had not only been uh, uh, an admiral in the Navy, but he'd also been the president of the Citadel, which is a big military yeah. uh, university in South Carolina. Um, and and he was hilarious. Yeah. Uh, he even said at one point, he said, "What am I even doing here?" Yeah. He he'd clearly never done anything like that, so he didn't know all the slick, disingenuous stuff. <laughs> And he was kind of an older guy, and just people ask him questions. Hmm, I don't know. Well, let me think. <laughs> you know, it was great. That's homesteering. Yeah, it was great. It was it was homespun and nice, and you know, and he was a smart guy. I mean, he gave good answers. But I don't think he was used to being questioned. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. That guy had been in charge of everything that he was involved with for so long. Right. But the idea that somebody could ask him a frank question. <laughs> It was clearly new to him, but since he was also clearly a nice man and an intelligent man, he's like, wow, this is really different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> oh, okay, so... He might, have been a good, he might have been a pretty good vice president. <laughs> yeah, you know, you would, would think with all the experience he has and, and being as bright as he is. Um, okay, so are there any... Um, let's turn to pop culture. Are there any depictions of elections and campaigns... And pop culture that do you find um, particularly philosophically interesting? Well, so when I teach political philosophy, I have uh, I always weave together uh, the, the the theory, the rhetoric, uh, and the policy, uh, which is which is to say that what I'm interested in is the way that people theorize before they realize they're going to have a political career. <laughs> the, way, uh, uh, the way that that theory relates to the rhetoric in their rise to power, and then what happens after they have it, see whether or not you can keep theory and uh, the original theory, the rhetoric, and the actual policies close together. And so when I teach political philosophy, I have my students read, and I'm doing it this semester, I have them read Lenin, Mao, Woodrow Wilson, and Hitler. Wow. And part of the reason is, is that there's a significant body of theory before power. There's a significant rhetoric in the rise to power, and then there's a significant opportunity for policy after power has been attained. Uh, and, and so I put, the, I put the question in front of the students, has anybody been able to, to make the theory work? Um, and you can see, so for example, we read Lenin's The State and Revolution, which he was writing as just before the Bolshevik Revolution. As in, and then we read his book, Left Wing Communism, um, uh, which is 1920. And he is really, he is really hard up against it in the second book, uh, trying to save the theory. Uh, and trying to claim that what he's doing is consistent with it. And it's so obvious. That 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 he's that he really wants the theory to, to 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 inform what he's trying to do, and he can't do it. He just he just can't. Um, Mao, on the other hand, there's an astonishing consistency. Uh, the 
between what he wrote before he had power, his rhetoric and the rise to power, and his policy after. Mao admitted his mistake. Uh, that's, I mean, you know, that, that that's how they eventually divinized him. It's because he was he was so powerful that he could say, "There's nothing wrong with the theory. I just didn't act on it in the right way." Wow. And that's what that's what he would say. And so his rhetoric was so different from somebody like Lenin, who's trying to shoehorn it all in. Like mm -hmm. I was saying, the theory was right. What was wrong was my decision. Uh, and that's the way he, and uh, so he maintained the theory by admitting his mistakes in, in practice. And of course, he died a natural death, mm -hmm. in spite of being the, responsible for the death of millions and millions of people. Um, and it destroyed Wilson's personality. His personality just disintegrated towards the end of his time in office. He could not maintain his ideals and also face down the U.S. Senate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It was, he became a bitter, I mean, it, it, it gave him a stroke. Wow. <laughs> and so, uh, um, uh, and so uh, I, I don't think he ever doubted that, that his ideals and his theories were true, uh, were correct, were the right theories. He, he just ended up blaming all of his political opponents for, the, for his inability to implement those, those theories. Uh, I mean, we didn't even join the League of Nations. Right, right. And so we didn't ratify the Treaty of Versailles, which, by the way, was such a flawed treaty that it, it even as, even though it destroyed Wilson's personality, at this point, it might be a point of pride that we didn't ratify the Treaty of Versailles. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but anyway, I mean, so these kinds of things, that's when, when I when I teach it, what I ask the students, and, and, and it's the same thing I would ask anybody to think about, is how does our very best thinking relate to what we say? And how do those together relate to what we find ourselves obliged to do? And since your question was an ethical one, I would say that is an ethical question, uh, that, that the ethical dimension of that question uh, is actually the important dimension, the political dimension of it. We don't expect consistency in politics, uh, not since Machiavelli. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it, it's been a long time since, uh, since people expected perfect consistency in politics. But the question is, how do you remain morally consistent when you're when you step into the political domain? And Wilson really tried to do that. I mean, you know, I have a lot of criticism <clears throat> of Wilson, not only the things that he did, but but also the things that he was. Uh, mm -hmm. But but that said, he was what he was, uh, and uh, and he tried to maintain it consistently, and it basically destroyed it mm -hmm. physically. And, 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 and so one of the things that, I mean, we've all noticed this, you put, you put an ethical person into the position of president of the United States and watch him age. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. Somebody Car like Donald Trump, and he looks exactly like he did. <laughs> <laughs> right. Carter's a famous example of that. Um, um, you know, Obama's hair is almost completely gray now. And it... yeah, yeah. I think I think those would be my two favorite examples. But George H. W. Bush was a was was a, was a, was an ethical man as well. And 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 the the office, he looked awful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, just kind of beaten. Um, I agree. All right, so um, do you agree with me that the best election film ever is Napoleon Dynamite? I say with tongue firmly in cheek. Um, if if not, what what is your favorite um, election film? Well, I certainly liked Napoleon Dynamite, but I never thought of it. Uh, uh, so I um, in, so there's an elect there's the election film uh, uh, phenomenon, and then there's the political film. So, you know, I really enjoyed, like, Manchurian Candidate, yeah. uh -huh. political film. I thought that was a, a really interesting movie. Yeah. Um, uh, but but in terms of, I don't see how anybody's ever going to beat Wag the Dog. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As, yeah. as an election film. That's what, uh, part of it is, is that you just can't beat Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but, but, but anyway... Uh, yeah, that uh, uh, the idea of a Hollywood director who would literally rather be executed than let somebody else get credit for, mm -hmm. <laughs> for, for, for having orchestrated the campaign. It's like it was my it's my masterwork. Uh, and so, uh, so anyway, uh, it, it, it's really fascinating to me how much when that movie came out, we all laughed and said, thank God it's not like that. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, but you know, Hollywood saw it coming because they knew Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. uh, and while he was doing a good job of playing the president on TV, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, there's a, a and, and Reagan's a smart man. There's no question about it. I mean, you can see it when, when he had all his wits about him and he was governor of California. Uh, that guy was, I mean, he was, he was a tough politician. Uh, yeah, he yeah. knew what he was doing. Um, uh, but uh, by the time he became president, he, he didn't have that. He didn't have that sort of edge. I don't know if you've ever watched his speeches when he was governor of California. Yeah, I, I grew up in California. I, oh, okay. I remember okay. him well, um, opening okay. up the mental institutions and all that nonsense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and so anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there uh, thinking to myself, well, was he acting? Ronald Reagan was not a good enough actor to have pulled that off. He was governing is what he was doing, but it became acting yeah, <laughs> yeah. later. Uh, and uh, and so uh, and so at this point, you know, uh, the Clint Eastwoods of the world uh, uh, recognize they they know their own. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Charlton Heston's and Clint Eastwoods know their know their and John Wayne's they know their own when they see them. And at this point, our president almost has to be an actor, mm -hmm. uh, even even if the president is also more than an actor. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, Wag the Dog turns out to be. Um, uh, I mean, it's not as silly as the actual scenario written up in that movie, but it turns out that if, that in the age of television and the silver screen, uh, if you're not an actor, then you can't really be a politician. Look at Adlai Stevenson; just couldn't pull it off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he just didn't. This earnest egghead, as they called him, was like you know he just. He was a perfect secretary to the United Nations, but that guy just didn't have the presence necessary to be president yeah there was an episode of um happy days to sort of date myself even further about um his campaign and i guess richie cunningham had gone to work for him and you know all the young idealistic people thought what a guy and then fonzie of course supports eisenhower so he gets up and he goes i like ike my bike likes ike and you know and then everyone goes yeah <laughs> and that was you know it's the the contrast couldn't have been greater right the as I say, how are you gonna? How are you gonna be? I like Ike. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, granting that Eisenhower was a person of real substance, as was Stevenson, right? They really were studies in contrast, but they were both people of real substance. Hmm. But I mean, Ike just had better PR people, and he was Ike. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And it wouldn't matter. I, I don't believe Stevenson would have been a good president. I think he, he was too idealistic. Mm -hmm. I think I think that the job would have would have killed him, would have defeated him, uh, the, sort of the same way it did Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, so that's all the questions we have for you. But we're wondering, uh, we're, we're also wondering what you're working on and if there's anything you want to promote. Well, there's always you know 20 projects in various <laughs> stages of, of completion. You know how that is. Uh, the thing I'm most excited about, and therefore probably the thing that'll get, I've got a sabbatical coming up. Oh, nice. COVID because I'm supposed to be going to Europe. Oh. Um, the thing I'm most excited about, which I'm going to do with or without the sabbatical, is uh, Open Court is uh, uh, going through some changes, but they, they, they've offered me a contract on my movie book. You know, I published a rock and roll book with them. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so uh, it's mostly written, the movie book is. It needs, it needs one more write through in order to turn it into the coherent sort of manuscript that, that it needs to be. And I'm really excited about that. We're, we're, we're toying with, um, uh, with any number of titles, Philosophy Goes to the Movies, Thinking Outside the Frame, Socratic Cinematics. David Steele doesn't like that because he says that's too intellectual. Um, <laughs> yeah. But doesn't, doesn't it sound like Socratic Cinematics? Wouldn't you buy that book? I like it. I like uh, it. But, uh, but anyway, uh, uh, so so that's the thing I'm most excited about. I'm working on two books that involve purse, Charles Sanders' purse. One is a book on purse and echo, and the other one is a book on purse and Royce. Um, hmm. uh, and uh, what I'm really doing is is trying to get inside of purse's head in a way that nobody else has really done, because one of the things that hasn't been done adequately by this really active Charles Sanders Purse scholar 
scholarly community, which is spread all over the world. And I mean, they are pouring stuff out all over the place. One thing they've really never done is compare him to other people. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, they treat him, treat him as such a singular genius, which no doubt he was. But one of the things I discover is that most of my Percyan friends have never read Royce. Most of my Deweyan friends have never read Royce. And that guy was absolutely in everybody's head who mm-hmm. was writing during during that time period. And as a scholar, scholarly specialty of mine, obviously I want to see Royce get his due. And I figured out that writing my own book on Royce, which is read by all the Royce people, mm-hmm. but not by the first people or the Dewey people. Like, extend so that, out, didn't yeah. that didn't work. And so I did write a significant part of my dissertation on Purse. Uh, and, and I am a Purse scholar. And so it's like, all right. I'll get them to read Royce because they have to read this book because it's about Purse, right? And it's the same thing with Echo. The Purse Smart. people need to read, need to read Echo, and they don't uh, because he's actually fixing some of the problems uh, in 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 Purse's philosophy, both the pragmatism and the semiotics. Echo has fixed some of those problems, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so the Purse people need to be reading him. Well, they're not going to read him unless I write a book that's Purse and Echo. <laughs> Yeah, that's <laughs> smart. It's a great strategy. Yeah, yeah. So those are both of those books are are well along, um, and I could finish them both during my sabbatical. But I really have to go to Europe. I really have to go to Italy. Oh, poor me. Yeah, I, we we feel that pull all the time. Well, wonderful. Um, thanks, thanks for talking to us today, and and good luck in the campaign. We'll be um, watching the returns on election night, yeah. and I'll I'll go online and and keep an eye on Illinois and, and see how you, you fare. Great. All right. Cheers. Okay, Rates, what are we liking this week? Well, we've, it's, they've released some things on Netflix that are spooky for the season or kind of edgy. Yeah, yeah. So we've watched Ratched. Mm-hmm. which was really fun yeah so we don't want to spoil anything but um highly recommended a um, little bit that we can say about it maybe is um if you like american horror story um brian murphy manages to make a lot of things seem an awful lot like american horror story and yeah. this was that way had you know, some of the same cast members very similar vibe the yeah. same vibe yeah the goofy camera angles and all of that um, less campy than the last several seasons of American Horror Story, but still fairly campy. But fairly campy, yeah. Not as not as kind of edgy as um, you know the Murder House yeah. or um, Asylum and so mm-hmm. forth. But very stylized. Very stylized, yeah. But um, delightful, and you know, and if if you've seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and you're hoping to see that character, um, perhaps just in name only. Right? Yeah, this is an origin story. And she's not there. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, uh, not safe for work a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, not too bad, but uh, this isn't necessarily something to watch with your kids. Right, right. Um, okay, what else? What else are we liking? Uh, uh, well, we started watching Haunting of Bly House. Yeah, we're which is, a few episodes in. Yep. Yeah. It's in the, made by the same people as Haunting of Hill House. Mm-hmm. And again, with... Um, some of the same cast members and it has a similar feel to that. Um, really good. Just, um, you know, we talked about Honey of Hill House on a previous episode and just loved it. And this promises to be every bit as good. Based on turning of the screw. Yeah. 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 Um, so there was a movie that came out um, also based on it last year, um, the, the Turning. And I'm guessing the stories are going to be pretty similar. I've noticed some important and, and fun differences so that I don't just feel like I'm watching that movie again. Mm-hmm. I, I think there are plot twists that did not exist in the in Turning, the Turning movie. Right. And maybe from the book or maybe things that they're adding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that it's a, a you know, limited series. Um, there's a lot more to explore than in a two-hour movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and the turning was good. It was, it was lots of fun. We enjoyed that. Um, this strikes me as being re- much richer, much yeah. better. Um, some of the performances, um, that especially the, the kids, are just outstanding. Yeah. I mean, they couldn't have cast this better. Yeah. Okay. And so that's, that's sort of the main things we've been doing. We, we wrapped up The Vow, which we've talked about a little bit. Um, if you like documentaries, mm-hmm. um, that's, that's a good one. Um, if, if you like cults or... 
if you're in a cult, right? This mm -hmm. is a good how-to manual mm -hmm. for getting yourself out of the cult and not dying. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that doesn't always work. So, <laughs> yeah. so good on good on these folks. And it, and it was just renewed for a second season. So um, this this isn't just a one-off. Um, mm -hmm. They'll they'll be following these stories. Um, and it's it you know it goes right up to I hope this isn't a spoiler I don't think it is but it it, it goes right up to essentially current day so they must have been filming this thing yeah yeah right up to the release of the episodes yeah and they in the the last episode they said something about well they asked us to keep filming so we did right and yeah. they, just, they you know it um it wraps up in a way but in a way it doesn't wrap up so um yeah I highly recommend that as well. All right, um, and then other than that, um, there's all the Halloween stuff that I always talk about um, that I haven't watched yet this year, but it'll be the ghost and Mr. Chicken on the TV for the next 10 days or so. <laughs> okay, Rach, that's a wrap. Another episode is in the can, and once again, everything has come up Charbonneau. Please visit our webpage, that's IThinkTheyreForIFan.com, all one word, to find out about upcoming episodes. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, please go to the webpage, click on the link at the top of the page that says Donate, and follow the instructions. As always, your support is greatly appreciated. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a rating. It helps. See you next time.